Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is R.B., your Midwest Grand Marshal, welcoming you to another episode and the season four finale of Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice trick-or-treating, but only to houses that give out apples and those stale popcorn balls. On today's episode, I hang out with an awesome friend I met at gay camp. But before we get to that, I want to do a season four recap as we close out this year of incredible conversations with Midwest masterminds. We kicked off the season talking to modern day cartographer Charlie Sprinkman, who created Everywhere is Queer, an international online map of LGBTQ businesses. On episode two, we dived into the depths of the documentary Diving for Rays, a queer conservationist story with producers and muses Nicole Morris, Nova West, and Angel Morris. During episode three, myself and my Midwest Institute co-conspirators Justin and Danielle tackled queer tropes and stereotypes. Episode four was an epic look at the golden era of queer comics with Amra Veer, a.k.a. the queer comic peddler. Episode five was a culinary dream as I got to hang out with the big brunch chef testant Katie Randazzo. For episode six, we revisited our transgender justice teach-in topic, Trans Fat, Lessons from Large Trans and Non-Binary Folks. I offered a reflection on my time spent in a liberatory think tank on episode seven. Google Doodle artist Sienna Gonzalez joined me as we honored the legacy of indigenous lesbian activist Barbara Mae Cameron on episode eight. Black queer nurse Brittany Daniels checked the pulse of affirming healthcare during episode nine. Midwest Institute resident nerds Andy and Michelle talked highs and lows of recent queer animation on episode 10. And Cody Daigle Orions, aka Ace Dad Advice, shared their aspirations for intergenerational asexual education on episode 11. I can't help but smile just thinking about the magic and meaning and modeling displayed in this lineup of conversations with folks who are contributing to this constellation of Midwest movement work through art, film, education, healthcare, food, maps, comics, and so much more. Uh, This podcast project has always been about unveiling what we've always known to be true, that behind the misperception of the Midwest as a whitewashed wasteland of conservative values and fields of corn, as far as the eye can see, uh, that there's also an intricate array of communities yearning for legibility, yearning to be seen. And I hope that the avenues we venture down this season spotlight the counter-narratives that are abundant in this region. Because it is these narratives, these stories of challenging the whiteness, the alleged scarcity of resources, the presumption of political leanings, it is these conversations that lead us to a more robust understanding of these systems, structures, and policies that impede our lives. 
I'm in awe that what started in 2020 as a means to keep alive the work of the Institute uh, to create community and offer education during a global lockdown at the onset of the pandemic has now become an oral history of Midwest queer and trans knowledge, experiences, and liberation. As we wrap up season four and look ahead to what's next, I'm so eager to continue archiving what for too long has been the unseen and undervalued demonstrations of liberatory frameworks present in the Midwest and use this podcast platform to address the manufactured geographical barriers that keep us in the shadows of this work and move toward meaningful solutions, and critical connections. Today's guest is all about telling important stories and using a platform to hold space for narratives on the margins. Katie Barnes is a dear friend and unstoppable force in the field of journalism. They are a feature writer with ESPN, focusing extensively on the experiences of trans athletes and gender equity in sports overall. Their new book, Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debate, drops today, September 19th, 2023. And I'm also thrilled to announce that Katie Barnes will be joining us as one of two keynotes at this year's Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference. So if you want to witness Katie's brilliance in person, make your arrangements for November 3rd through 5th in Lexington, Kentucky. More details can be found at mblgtacc.org. A final thanks to all the listeners who've come along for this wild ride and all the guests who've shared their wisdom with whomever would listen on season four. Stay tuned for more information about a live show and the kickoff of season five, because we're not going anywhere. It's time to root for the home team on this season finale of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely going to talk about Midwest Nice, and if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is, Midwest Nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, fam. Um, I'm super hype about this. Uh, I basically predicated my entire publishing schedule off of making sure that we could have this chat publish um, on a specific day. So you have been like the centrifuge and guiding light of this entire publication schedule for season four you're welcome um <laughs> it's like well you know me so well so you know that i'm thrilled about that exactly exactly um so let's go ahead and let's do a quick intro um and if you could include in your little intro um what is your relationship to the midwest uh, my name is katie barnes i use they them pronouns I am a long-form feature writer at ESPN and the author of 
a book called Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debates. And my relationship to the Midwest is that it is where I grew up and spent all of my life until I moved for my job eight years ago. Uh, so I grew up in Indiana. I went to college in Minnesota and grad school in Ohio. It's a pretty Midwestern. Very, very Midwestern. Um, we've known, I, I did the math. I felt like I had to do the math before we hopped on here. You're welcome. I know we're going to, we're going to feel really old for 2.5 seconds. Um, I think it's been 10 years. Pretty sure. About 2013, yeah. 2014, um, as queer college students going to this little, little event um, called Camp Pride. And uh, we didn't like each other, actually, from what I recall. We were not, just the vibe was not there. Uh, fast forward 10 years later, that has changed, um, obviously. Otherwise, this probably wouldn't um, be happening. But uh, the way in which I think we entered into each other's ecosystem was very much about like, being very engaged college students, um, being very attentive college students. I don't know if maybe that's how you feel about your experience as they see your face. Um, but um, being very involved college students, paying attention to kind of the, the gaps for queer and trans students on our respective campuses, I being in Kansas City at the time, you would have been in Minnesota at the time when you went to camp or were you in Ohio by then? By the time you and I met, because I think we didn't meet until, like, actually meet me until 2014 camp. Got it. But I hadn't, we had been aware of each other mm -hmm. as campers in 2013. Um, and through Mumble Tech, just generally, I think. Yeah. So I, but when we actually met, I would have been um, between grad school years in Ohio. Gotcha. Because we were both on staff as Pride Leaders. That's true. Yeah. So you would have been in Ohio. I was coming from, or was I in Kansas by then? Who knows? Who knows? I think I might've actually been right between this chronology doesn't matter, but the point of this, right. Origins in student leadership, Ohio based queer and trans college students coming to the space, which in some ways I think laid some foundation for understanding, like what is the experience of LGBTQ youth? Mm -hmm. And I would wager to guess has informed a lot of what you do um, in your daily life and very much what I do as someone who stuck it out in higher education <laughs> for better or for worse. And I'm still doing the higher education route. Oh, someone um, has to. Someone has to. I know it's me for now. Um, and so I, I think I, I start there just to name that, like, the ways that I know and have witnessed you move in your like, ex like your work now in, at ESPN, doing your investigative style work long form work um i think starts there but probably starts even earlier than that knowing that you were also um someone who was in sport uh which i think is a big big part of your daily life like it is part and parcel of what you do so can we zoom back even further before i had any sense that Katie Barnes existed in the world to like your relationship with sports, um, maybe how that has intertwined at all with like emerging into your queer and trans experiences. What has that kind of little young Katie trajectory looked like? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because I grew up playing sports. I played basketball primarily. Um, I started playing, you know, competitive, like organized basketball when I was eight years old. Um, and I played soccer as well. And, you know, I did T-ball for like two years. Um, but like sports was a huge part of my upbringing. 
um, both as somebody who played, but then also as, you know, a fan or a spectator. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like my family was the kind of family where after church, sure, we'd go to the potluck, but kickoff was at one and it didn't (laughs) matter who was playing. We were home, Um, you know, and like every Sunday we would have frozen pizza in the living room. It was a picnic. And like, so we could watch the Sunday night game. Like that was the vibe. Yeah. Um, and to this day, I still have frozen pizza on Sunday nights because yeah. football, it's very important. <laughs> um, And, you know, so sports has just been like, I can't remember my life without it. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, like I remember going to WBA games with my dad and, you know, watching soccer with my dad and um, football with both my parents. And like, it was just a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um. And what's so interesting is like, you know, I definitely used sports, especially basketball, as like a way to express myself more masculinely when I was younger, Mm -hmm. you know, like being this like gender bending queer kid in Indiana and like middle of nowhere, Indiana. Like I did not grow up in Indianapolis. Like my hometown's 1400 people. Like, let's be very clear about that. Oh, no. Yeah. Very small. Um. And so, you know, I was a tomboy and like, I just was never comfortable in Mm -hmm. feminine clothing at all. And my parents, you know, were very encouraging and supportive. My mother just requested that perhaps I wear less red and black, like just open the color palette. (laughs) Uh, But like, they let me shop in the boys section. And, you know, my mom asked me to wear a dress on Easter Sunday. And like, that was it. And I thought that was a perfectly fine deal. I was like, all right. And I had my special dress for Easter Sunday and that's what I wore, <laughs> um, you know? And so like basketball for me was a place where I could wear a cutoff t-shirt and it wasn't mm-hmm. weird. I could wear baggy shorts and that wasn't something that people really got on me about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a place where I could express myself in terms of how I felt from a gender expression perspective mm-hmm. without dealing with you know, the policing of my peers. Mm. Um, And that policing came from my peers. It never came from my family. And so, you know, I came out as queer, bisexual specifically, Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 16 years old and I fell in love on the internet, which is a very gay story for another time. Um, (laughs) It happened. Um, And, you know, as I went to college and like really got involved in student leadership, my I went to a small school. I went to St. Olaf College in Minnesota and not a big sports school, you know, big nerd school. And so the fact that I love sports was like a weird thing. Um, And my leadership as a queer student was kind of separate from my sports life. Like I coached in town uh, during my sophomore and junior years at a small Catholic school. So I was in the closet during that time Mm. off campus, which is a very strange experience. Mm. And then I coached freshman high school girls basketball um, my senior year of of college. And I could be a little bit more out then, but I wasn't super out. Um, Again, off campus, on campus, very out, obviously. (laughs) And so I was kind of juggling those things. Like it was a separate sort of world. Like I didn't, like my queer organizing had nothing to do with sports and my sports life had like nothing to do with what I was doing as a queer organizer on campus. 
And it really wasn't until grad school that I was like, why am I not like doing both of these things? I don't understand. Um, and so I went to the LGBT sports summit the summer between grad school years, um, summer of 2014. And that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I started writing soon after that. I had a sports and pop culture column at feministing.com beginning in like February of 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, I decided not to go into higher ed, but like, I didn't think I was going to be a writer. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Like it wasn't a thing. I was just like, I don't want to do this. Like that's, it's just not for me. Um, And so I was like, oh, well, I'll probably go into comms. Like I really thought that I was like going to do communications at like Nike or something. Um, and so after grad school, I like went on a 50 state LGBT food tour. Mm-hmm. I went to 30 states in two months and cold applied to a job at ESPN. Um, and they took me. Well, it's that simple. And then I, and it was like a year long fellowship that was rotational. Again, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that I would become a writer, but I was hired out of that as a staff writer for ESPNW, primarily on the back of like cultural analysis, the kinds of things that I think about as a queer and trans person and as like, you know, a biracial person mm-hmm. um, and the intersection of all of those things, like how I approach sports, how I think about sports, how I think about my own experiences um, and that, you know, I was given an opportunity to sort of develop um, as a feature writer. And that's, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> it's like a wild story. I know it, it is. And I, I remember details of the story, like as it has played out over the years and just like, you've kind of named that element of surprise throughout this entire progression. And you just kind of, I'm not going to say lucking into because you're very talented and just like, you know, very a focused person on like, I want to do this. And then you saunter off and you do that thing, like just very seamlessly very jealous but luck is an important part like timing is important the path that i took to get to espn and to flourish at espn is no longer available and like and it pretty much disappeared within two years of me getting there so like and and not just the program that hired me but espnw at the time was its own standalone website with its own Um, content in a way that doesn't exist currently Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the coverage of women's sports doesn't exist it does but like I wrote about American Ninja Warrior for like a year (laughs) and like I couldn't do that now Um, you know like I wrote a ton about stunt doubles and um, you know Mm -hmm. pop culture and TV Mm -hmm. and movies like I got to do a lot of that stuff at the time ESPN as an entity was more pop culture driven okay and over time that it's become much more focused on like fantasy sports, betting, hardcore trades, you know, um, transactions, like really hardcore sports information. Mm. And so some of those softer things that I was able to do and where I was able to grow and develop just, it simply does not exist. Um, you know, so that's just sort of an interesting thing. Like timing does have a lot to do with it for sure. Which I guess is a bummer to hear, because I think, like, again, this element of excellent timing, kind of just going for something and then getting, you know, embraced in that way. Um, I think that it's very interesting because there's things from, like, your educational background, for example, that have come up 
in valuable ways in your writing. I think one of those prime items is that you studied Russian history in undergrad. And so then to be able to speak on Brittany Griner's scenario of being entrapped in Russia as a queer person of color, right? Like who best to speak on that than a queer person of color who studied Russian history? Like, hello, like you could not be better equipped to speak on such a fucked up situation, quite frankly, right? Like how your other educational background and experiences have fed into kind of the lens you're able to bring to something that otherwise was reported in a very matter of fact way. Yeah, well, I think I see that in so many areas of what it is that I cover like you know having a degree in higher education and just being able to understand how colleges work Mm -hmm. like that is a thing that not everybody understands like they may Mm -hmm. understand how how like power five conference athletics work but like to understand how institutions of higher education work separately from those systems and also how those systems relate to these other systems that are going on um, like that, I think is, you know, something that I bring. And with that comes like, you know, a foundational knowledge or title nine that a lot of people don't have. Right. And like the understanding of, um, kind of like the ongoing conversations about title nine, how that is, was playing out on college campuses in the mid to late teens, um, and how that has changed. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden I was like a title nine person and I was like, I didn't know that was going to be a thing, but it has been. And I, <laughs> you know, really credit, you know, my graduate degree for some right. of that. Um, but then, you know, I look at, yes, you know, history, Russian studies and American studies were my college majors. Mm-hmm. And like, those are all research and analysis driven majors. And that's all I do. I research things. I analyze them and I synthesize ideas and sometimes I make an argument like it's that simple. Yeah. Um, It's just reporting. And so, you know, whether I am, you know, operating in a space where I'm thinking about an idea, like, you know, some kind of like cultural, like marination on, you know, sports and gender, right. Which I think is like where I have lived for much of my career um, but then thinking about like how race plays a role, how um, you know, how those things plug into pop culture, um, how those references can help explain the world that we see around us. Like all of that is just, you know, the foundational education that I got at St. Olaf based mm-hmm. on what I studied. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think like the work I did in grad school, you know, that really has applied well and the organizing work I did in undergrad too to like the behind the scenes stuff I do in our employee resources group uh, resource groups at the Walt Disney company and ESPN, um, you know, like ERGs are just like your college student groups. They're just uh, corporations. It's the same thing. And so whether it's programming or providing feedback on content, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I'm on the inclusive content committee, I'm an ESPN equal on our leadership team. Um, you know, all those sorts of things. That's all stuff that I've been doing forever. Right. Um, it's just in a different setting. Right. And so being able to apply that knowledge, I think is also something that's helpful in terms of thinking about like what my career has looked like and why I've been successful is that there aren't a ton of people that are sitting one at the intersection that I sit at two doing the work that I do both in terms of the content that I create and the beats that I cover, but then also what I do behind the scenes uh, mm-hmm. to support um, our diversity and inclusion work mm-hmm. um, and belonging work 
we say belonging now, which Ooh. gave me a real laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. I know. I was like, oh, uh-huh. okay. Um, you know, but all of that sort of Student stuff. Development Theory 101. Yeah, you know, like I was like, In a oh, like I, cringe way. <laughs> I was like, oh, I did that. I was, and so, um, you know, all of those are important conversations yeah. and like my education background get, equipped me to have those conversations in meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You spoke to this a bit, kind of talking about like the trajectory of kind of stepping into ESPN, what you were kind of, uh, the lion's share of what you were writing when you got there, right? Pop culture, stunt um, stunt doubles. Um, I remember you doing, was it like a 10-year commemorative piece for Bend It Like Beckham? I remember you working on that. Was it 10 yeah. years? Yeah, I think it was, fif- it was 15. 15, yeah. So those kind of pieces um, were kind of uh, your bread and butter for a while. And it's been what, how many years with ESPN? More Eight. than five. Eight? Mm-hmm. How in the world? Wow. I have no concept of time. Trash. Yeah. Okay. So what I was going to name, right, eight years later, right, you have largely emerged as someone who is in that exact niche and area of speaking on sport and gender, speaking on Title IX, right, and being kind of this, you're in high demand. Like, I I remember texting you and I was like, so I see you on all these other podcasts. Let's go. <laughs> Come on. Like, you are in high demand. Um, And it's for a reason because there is this kind of lack in a large way of folks equipped in position to speak in a particular way on this and it's from the lens of a history of gender barriers in sport um and i think i i would wager a guess that this kind of emergence and what has unfolded draws back to one of your biggest pieces that kind of i I would wait here. We'll talk about this. Um, Opened up quite a few pathways for you to become kind of this know-how positioned expert in this way. Um, In 2018, with your very lengthy piece that I know took, you know, a long time um, called They Are Champions. So can we speak on that piece a bit of just like what all went into that piece? A quick, maybe just blip overview of what was going on in that and how that has kind of springboarded some of your work since then. Yeah, uh, so They Are the Champions um, chronicles the story of two high school transgender athletes. One, Mac Beggs, who is a wrestler in Texas who won back-to-back girls' state championships um, and as a transgender boy. Uh, the other being Andrea Yearwood, who was uh, a runner. Um, uh, she competed from 2017 to 2020 in the girls' category in track and field in the state of Connecticut. She's a Black transgender woman now. Um, but at the time, you know, I think when I first started following Andrea, she was 14 um, and Mac was graduating from high school uh, when this came out. Um, but I spent, you know, the better part of a year chronicling both of them um, and a year before that actually looking for a transgender athlete in Texas specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in February of 2016, uh, there was a policy change that was covered by the local media and mm-hmm. it was just policy. It wasn't law at this time. Um, that defined gender eligibility for various sex separation sports as being determined by birth certificate. And uh, it seemed that it was being framed as something that specifically was looking to target transgender athletes. Um, and I remember being like, okay, well, it's Texas. There's a lot of people in Texas. Somebody is trans and playing sports. Right. And I wanted to explore that. Um, and I was still so new on staff. I think that's mm-hmm. something that people kind of forget. Um, 
And so when this piece came out in May of 2018, it was my first uh, story that went into ESPN, the magazine, RMP. And it was my first like long form feature. I mean, it was about 4,000 words when it ran. Mm -hmm. Um, It was technically a very hard piece to write. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that it was going to be a one-off. Like I didn't think Mm -hmm. that this was going to be my professional life. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, after that came a documentary on Mac uh, called Mac Russell's, um, which is a documentary short that is available on Disney Plus if you're curious. Um, I don't think I knew that. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Um, And then, you know, it just became this thing, like, you know, pretty soon Mm -hmm. after that piece published, because the way that it was situated was like Mac was experiencing really the weight of state attention at that time, which was yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and Andrea was running in Connecticut at that time, her freshman year, really kind of without incident. Like there was some like New England dis- like style people being disgruntled, but it was whispers. Mm-hmm. Like people weren't upset and yelling at her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was happening kind of behind the scenes. And it was kind of bubbling. But like, you know, yes, she won the small school state championship, but she did not win either state championship in the state open. Or I think it might have been different had she won that year and she did not. Um, Mm -hmm. But then that piece closes with Terry Miller starting to run too, who's another transgender girl Mm -hmm. um, who began running in the girls category her sophomore year, as well as Andrea's sophomore year. And that was where things really took a turn in Andrea's story specifically and with Connecticut in general. And so almost immediately after this this story published, I was like, I've got to go back to Andrea because this stuff is happening. Um, And I just kind of buckled in along for the ride and it led to multiple pieces. It led to the book um, that just, that will be coming out in September Um, and all of those things. So Mm -hmm. it's, it ended up being a career-defining piece. Mm-hmm. I, it was a big deal piece, and I, I think what I, you know, recognize out of it too is that it was this very important combination of like anecdote and personal story from um, the athletes you spoke to. It's a very you named as a technically difficult piece. I'm assuming, and could probably make an educated guess that it was probably a personally complex piece to write, just based on your personal attachment to some of the story. Um, and then some of the, I, I vaguely remember, you might have to just kind of like reframe or refresh, but I, I vaguely remember at that time when you were working on the piece or maybe a related piece, um, talking to a Texas administrator who like was very, very anti-trans, generally speaking. Um, do I have that generally right? And like having to have certain conversations with folks who were on the side of, no, we don't want trans athletes playing sports in our state I vaguely remember and like also again speaking to your student affairs background even knowing who to ask or who to reach out to at a like administrative level at a school to even ask those questions that you asked yeah I mean that's the thing I think about sitting in this space in general is and I think that's reflected in fair play too Mm -hmm. um is for me journalistically I think it's incredibly important uh to talk to all like to gather as many perspectives as possible Mm -hmm. and to talk to all relevant parties Mm -hmm. um and i think the interview that you're actually thinking about involved the texas legislator um yeah and 
So, you know, that person wrote a bill and I was like, well, I've got to talk to the person that's writing bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yeah, those things, those are hard conversations sometimes mm-hmm. for me on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, but professionally, I think it's necessary. Um, and I think it's really important in terms of telling a full story around what is going on. Mm-hmm. And the best possible way to do that is to have, is to have people share their perspectives and viewpoints and present those in context. Um, and, you know, I think examine them with, examine all of those perspectives with similar, similar levels of, of veracity. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't let folks um, who perhaps share some opinions that I have um, get away with spin um, you know, just mm-hmm. as I don't let folks who I don't necessarily share the same opinions as get away with spin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important. My mm-hmm. greatest fealty is to truth and accuracy and mm-hmm. fairness in general in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I pursue pretty relentlessly. <laughs> Not everybody loves that, but it is the truth. I anticipate that's extra important for you as someone who has personal stake in some of this narrative and some of the storytelling in that as someone who is trained in journalism, but isn't actively, well, I guess that's not true. I'm doing journalism right now, aren't I? But (laughs) uh, my podcast doesn't have to play that same line of kind Mm -hmm. of adding all of those elements of every every position, every viewpoint um, in a way that I've seen you very tactfully navigate um, in a lot of your reporting and a lot of other interviews that I've seen you in. And I know that I am not the person to do that. So I'm glad you can be, I'm glad you can be that. Cause I'm just like, I don't want to talk to the opposition, right. but like you truly have to, to your point, kind of craft the full context and circumstance of a given matter. Um, especially when it comes to gender equity in sport, trans equity in sport and all of the interrelated content that you co- um, covered. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because like, I don't know. For me, desire, like, do I want to do that um, is an interesting question. Um, I feel very duty bound to doing it. Um, And it's a choice that I make, right? Mm -hmm. Like nobody at ESPN makes me write the stories that I write. I pitch every single one of them. Um, And like, I believe in the approach Mm -hmm. and I think it's incredibly important. Um, because I, I do think like there's a place for everything, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have echo chamber style media for various perspectives, whatever your opinion is, you can find something that, you know, services that opinion and that viewpoint. Um, and I think those spaces are important. Sometimes it's just nice to preach to the choir. I get it. <laughs> I do it. Like that's for me, that's what group chats are for. Sure. Right. Or like phone calls with friends. Like, yes. But sometimes I just need like a viewpoint hug, right? You just want to be with your people. A you want to sit, hug. you know, it's like you want to sit in it with your people. Yeah, I get it. I'm all for it. Yes. And also for me as a journalist, um, both for yes, the mainstream sports outlet, but also in terms of thinking about what is my book on the topic going to say. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's devoid of perspective. And in fair play, I do give my opinion, which will shock no one what I what I think. I think <laughs> yeah. Like I've said it in different ways over the years. Um, but it's also incredibly measured. And that's also what I believe. Um, and that's from 
spending years sitting in this place and absorbing the perspectives of so many different people. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that is really hard. There Mm -hmm. have been times where I personally was very challenged um, by what was happening in the world in terms Mm -hmm. of attacks on queer and trans people. Um, And from a variety of, like from a variety of angles, right? Whether we're talking about legislatively or we're talking about uh, violently in terms of hate crimes and shootings Mm -hmm. and, or just like the language that is used, right? Like anyone who is a member of our community um, in the past few years, I'm sure has felt similarly to the way that I have felt Mm -hmm. in terms of just being afraid at times of not always feeling safe, of being deeply concerned, right? Like separate from what I think journalistically and the stories that I tell, just how I feel as a queer and trans person, Mm -hmm. of course, I share many of those perspectives. And that is hard. And that affects sometimes how I'm able to do my work um, or how I feel while doing my work. Um, There have been challenging moments. Um, But ultimately, like, I just, I believe very strongly in if somebody wrote a bill, I should go talk to them. You know, if somebody's arguing in front of the Supreme Court, I'm going to talk to them. Um, and that's my job. Mm-hmm. And if I, and if for whatever reason, right, they won't talk to me anymore, then to me, that signals it's time for me to have to do something different professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so relationship management is a really important part of that process. Mm-hmm. And that's also very challenging mm-hmm. um, at times. Um so it just, it is what it is, but it's the, the the product that comes from that process is something of which I'm incredibly proud. We talked about timing in a different way earlier in this chat, and I'm thinking about timing in relation to kind of this premier piece um, that we're talking about from May of 2018, which I think timing wise, right, kind of just barely predates the ways that trans participation in sport has become the signature talking point of especially, you know, conservative politicians, but generally, right, the general public has latched onto that. And I I think about it from the perspective of like, you and I being an approximate age and kind of growing into our queerness during a time when it was the bathroom bills that were kind of the top tier talking point. That was the way that, you know, trans antagonistic viewpoints were trying to lead us into some kind of enforcement against transness and it didn't work right like there was some you know there was definitely some bills passed but ultimately enforcing who uses what bathrooms is more difficult than enforcing who gets to participate in sport and so I know from my kind of bystander perspective is not a sports gay but someone who uh has very much paid attention to something that you very clearly lay out in every capacity you can that a lot of what is happening in sport lays groundwork for and framework for other types of trans, anti-trans legislation or anti-trans movement. And so I think for you to have named something in that way with the piece in 2018 kind of was the, one of the earliest, I think, captures of what now the general public is a bit more aware of is, oh, this is being weaponized in a very particular way because the bathroom bill talking point didn't work as well as our opposers thought it would. And that there's been, I think, more traction, unfortunately, around the sports debate because of it being, I think you named it as like a very sex segregated 
institution of sport and it's able to play out in a different way than I think the bathroom bills of our youth <laughs> were trying to trying to um conjure. Yeah, but I mean what's so interesting is we've come full circle, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're seeing bathroom bills get brought up in states and pass again. Mm-hmm. We're seeing um a discourse around locker rooms and bathrooms in particular. Um at you know, really take center stage to push um, that type of legislation once again. And the argument that I make in fair play that I really do stand behind is that the proliferation of the bills that and laws that restrict um, transgender girls in particular um, from their ability to participate in girls and women's sports, the fact that those passed into law and went and have done so largely unchallenged, mm-hmm. right? And to be clear, I don't just mean in terms of lawsuits, but I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. But like the coalition that really took a stand uh, when it came to North Carolina passing HB2, for example, mm-hmm. where we saw corporations, large-scale sports organizations, um, major pop culture figures, uh, cancel concerts, um, conventions, boycotting, like the backlash was swift mm-hmm. and overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And even though like the repeal of HB2 when they passed HB142 did not do what many advocates had hoped that it would do, mm-hmm. um, it staved off a similar bill from passing in Texas. Um, you know, there were other um, bills that targeted the LGBTQ community from a religious freedom perspective that failed in Georgia and were and that was amended in Indiana in 2015 because of a similar coalition coming out against these bills. Mm-hmm. And that response did not happen when Idaho passed HB 500, largely because it was probably Idaho, but still, mm-hmm. right? Like that did not happen. When other states started considering um, sports bills in particular, whether it was Texas or, um, you know, Indiana or North Carolina, which has overrode Roy Cooper's veto or Florida, which is one of the first big states to pass one of these into law. Mm-hmm. There was no public shaming in the same way mm-hmm. that occurred, um, with HB2 in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so these bills passed into law pretty much unchallenged from that perspective, mm-hmm. And as that happened, right, like, I think, and I think my reporting shows it, that the consequence of many of the sports ban, like the sports bills just not being challenged from a public perspective, was that it opened the door to other Mm. types of legislation Mm. to be filed and to be successful across the country. And that's when we saw the pivot to healthcare that has also been incredibly successful. But I don't think those bills become successful in the way that they have been if the sports bills don't pass first, Um, Mm. which is why it was so incredibly challenging, I think, to watch the lack of movement response on the sports bills. It's pretty, I don't know. Like, I honestly don't have the words for it. And so, like, I understand now why there's been such a pivot to the healthcare bills because, you know, why focus all your energy on something that that generally affects just a few of yeah. like of people who are trans when healthcare affects almost everybody who's trans, right? Like, yeah. so I get that. 
Um, and that's not my core criticism. It's that in 2020 and 2021, there was a window to have a formidable response from a movement perspective. And that did not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been really disappointing. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, that's a real bummer. But I think, you know, when I look back at they are the champions or I watch Mac wrestles, it's like looking into a time capsule. It feels uh-huh. like a completely different time. Um, you know, 2018 was two years before HB 500. Mm-hmm. And like the landscape is completely different. Like Andrea Yearwood was, has been invoked in this fight all across the country um, for, by proponents of restrictive legislation. You know, I think a lot of people think about Leah Thomas now because mm-hmm. of how big that story <laughs> was, right? But Leah Thomas didn't get into a pool on the women's team until the fall like early winter of 2021 Mm. by that point nine states had already passed Mm. this type of legislation and it was andrea yearwood and terry miller that they were talking about um and i and in some cases um juniper eastwood or cc telfer but a lot of the bills originally really focused on school sports and they invoked andrea and terry and you know, that to me is really interesting because, you know, I read that piece and I'm basically like, oh yeah, Andrea's fine. And not knowing what was going to happen in the next three years. Right. Um, and, you know, that kid shouldered a tremendous burden. Um, and she's just out living her life, like just living her best life. She graduates from college next year. Well, you know, that's pretty incredible. I'm so proud of her. I'm just so stressed and impressed and unimpressed in the moment. Um, not with that. That's great. Yay for graduating college. But everything you named, I think, just kind of showcases how when given a little, the opposition takes a whole lot and they kind of uh, gain this traction very easily by putting out talking points that can be co-signed onto by the general public. I'm doing air quotes, but like, I think Leah Thomas was a prime example that like she was not the first, nor will she be the last person who um, draws some obscure ire and attention around, you know, the quote unquote fairness of her participation. But I think that was an instance in which I saw way more folks on like my social media, for example, who generally don't, they weren't watching collegiate swimming any point in time prior to that exact moment, but suddenly had this very um, explosive opinion about whether or not they thought it was appropriate for her to be participating, right? And what that means to other folks in their ecosystem who are trans and why they think they have an entitlement to even speak on that when they had no stake or relationship to the sport at all, but they are entitled to an opinion because whatever obscure rationale they've decided. Um, And I think that we're seeing, or at least I feel like I'm seeing, you know, more incremental pieces of that to say, well, when it comes to sports, I do think it's different, right? They might not have co-signed onto a bathroom bill idea, but a you know, average average Joe might have a really strong opinion about sport because of it being a a literal like group activity, like a spectator, like everybody can view it activity. <laughs> like well, I think so I think there are multiple things there, right? One is that sport, people are incredibly emotional about sports. Yes. Whether they played them or they're fans or spectators, right? Yeah. Like people have feelings yes. about sports. Yes. Um, very strong ones. Um, and also it is a mass cultural activity. And yeah. I think sometimes 
we as a queer and trans community don't always understand that. Sure. So what I mean by that is for mo- for a lot of queer and trans people, like sports is a site of trauma, right? Like it was a place that generated a ton of anxiety, whether it's mm-hmm. PE class or it was, you know, just like being in the locker room in general and like, you know, like people are undressing and you're like, okay, but like, I'm attracted to women. Like, what do I do? Like, you know, it's just like a lot of anxiety yes. of being in homosocial environments for a lot of reasons. Yes. Um, and so I think that's part of it. And also a lot of queer and trans people are just pushed out of sports, right? Yes. Like, and so we're like, no, like that is, that is a silly thing. That's silly cishets do not us. Like we do theater. And we care about healthcare and employment, right? Like we want to talk about housing equality, right? People don't care. Like we don't care if you can play sports or not. This is not the conversation we want to be having, right? right? Like as a larger community, sports are very important. I care very much about sports, just to be clear. But, and I think, you know, part of that meant that when this, like, when this issue arrived at the doorstep of the greater LGBTQ equality movement, Mm -hmm. folks were like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think we're, and you can see it in mm-hmm. the Equality Act hearing um, of like 2019, where, you know, people like, and it's just fascinating because the House at that time was controlled by Democrats. They're going to pass the bill, right? And so the Republicans were trying to not pass the bill and they were keying in on transgender girls in girls sports. It's very clear that it's happening. And you can see a lot of the democratic witnesses going, okay, <laughs> sports, I, housing? Like, can we talk about housing? Yes. Um, and so to me, it's just like really interesting um, how that has happened where, you know, I think the meaning, the cultural meaning of sports kind of caught the movement by surprise. I caught a lot of people by surprise because we may not always attach that same cultural meaning because in fact, the cultural meaning for us as a community around sports is actually something quite different. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But in terms of thinking about the masses and that emotional attachment to sports, it's incredibly moving. Mm-hmm. And then also the argument for restriction is quite simple and it's a very seductive argument. Boys shouldn't play girl sports. Okay. Mm-hmm. I agree. That boy shouldn't play girl sports. But wait, who do you think is a boy? Correct. Yeah. Uh, right. Like, and so that's an that oversimplification. The, yeah. It's a very clear argument meant to prey on yes. a lot of our assumptions that we make culturally about both sports and gender. Mm-hmm. And one of those is that any person who is assigned male at birth is a better athlete than any person who's assigned female at birth in perpetuity for all time in all situations. And even if not everybody agrees with that perspective, it's clear that that drives a lot of the argument for restriction. Mm -hmm. And it's why, you know, you've seen it come down from, well, elite athletes should have restrictions to, well, if you have XY chromosomes, you should never be allowed to do girls cross country. And it's like, well, like, okay, trans people can't change their chromosomes, but physiologically speaking, like, a transgender girl who has never gone through testosterone-driven puberty physiologically mm. really isn't different from mm. a cisgender girl who mm-hmm. also has never gone through testosterone-driven puberty, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's true. 
but then also a transgender woman or a trans or a transgender adolescent who either began testosterone driven puberty or completed testosterone driven puberty and then medically transitioned and suppressed testosterone and did a lot of things physiologically is not the same as a cisgender man who also went through testosterone driven puberty like that is also true and yet trans women who did go through testosterone driven puberty and perhaps medically transitioned in adulthood or late adolescence um, are treated in conversation as physiologically the same as a cisgender man, mm-hmm. which is scientifically inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Like there is no scientific study that says that they are the same. Mm-hmm. And so like, I just want to be very clear about that. Like that's not me, Katie Barnes having an opinion. Like that is me, Katie Barnes having read all this, like a whole bunch yeah, of science. So much I'm sure. <laughs> so, but most people don't know that. And culturally, right. They think, oh, yeah, well, the reason we have the WNBA is because WNBA players can never compete with NBA players. Facts, yeah. And it's like, okay, kind of, like, it's sort of a yes and in that, yeah, there's height vary. Like, most WNBA players are significantly shorter than NBA players, so that would be difficult. Um, and also, let's talk about funding and resource allocation. Hey. <laughs> and, like, if we don't have women's sports would comparably talented women be allowed to compete with their male counterparts right. or would it all re- or would it always be assumed that they were incapable of such competition mm-hmm. and like that does not mean right that i mean so i like all of that is true and it's also true that the fastest woman in the world is not nearly as fast as the fastest man in the world but that doesn't mean that above average female athletes are not better athletes than average men or below mm-hmm. average men. Mm-hmm. Like it just, mm-hmm. there's just such a lack of nuance in mm-hmm. the conversation. And I find that to be really troubling because mm-hmm. I think if folks really think through like what is being presented to them that and really grapple with not just the fact that this legislation exists, but the breadth of the legislation. Like we're not talking about ages where puberty is messy, right? We're not just talking about high school. We're mm-hmm. not talking about elite athletics, like just talking about competitive division one college. Like a lot of this legislation affects kindergarten through collegiate intramurals. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, does it matter if a trans woman competes in women's intramural volleyball? Like there are no stakes there, right? Like I would argue right. probably not. Like, no. I don't know that it matters. No. Um, and some people would say, well, but safety. I'm like, yes. my, my like I played sandball volleyball with my dad growing up. Like I was fine. Like, or, and, and then it begs the question of like, what is the limit of this type of yeah. restriction? Yeah. Are we going to start policing who plays with who and pick up at the Y? Oof. Like, yep. are we going to like, are we going to start, you know, examining parks and rec policies around who's playing flag football, mm-hmm. who gets to play in a community softball league, mm-hmm. like slow pitch softball, you know, mm-hmm. like, is that, is that where we're going? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know that folks have really thought about some of those questions um, because they see a story like Leah Thomas 
yeah. and go, well, that's not fair. And it's like, okay, well, we can have a discussion about what appropriate policy is for division one right. athletics and for elite athletics, like that's fine. But should those limits that we place on elite athletes also be imposed on seven-year-olds? <laughs> right. Which I think brings up a point too, like from the perspective of like folks aware of you more so than I, but I'm generally, and you are more significantly aware of like NCAA policy, division one collegiate sports policy, right? Like the reality of there being very specific steps that Leah Thomas, as an example, had to take prior to the moment she jumped in the pool and became an NCAA division one champion, right? Like there is already a significant set of policies that are rife with transphobia, but they're in place, right? They're already in place. And I think that the way that some of these talking points have been laid out is that trans folks in the sense that we are predatory people are just free to enroll in sport and take advantage and win all these trophies and beat out all the cishets, et cetera, et cetera, which like, I think speaks to something that I gathered out of what you were saying earlier is that there's kind of two cultural battles happening. One is in-house with queer and trans folks to have kind of tried to do this project. I remember in 2021, you and Chris Mosier and Naomi Goldberg sat on a screen as one of our queer policy conversations. And we literally titled it, why are we talking about sports? And it was for the perspective of folks like me who are not sports gays, who had not been introduced to all of the connected pieces of if this is what the opposition is looking at right now, here's all the ways in which this will tailspin into more complex restrictions on trans people. This is just a stepping stone into something larger. And you've already named it has turned into healthcare restrictions, gender affirming care restrictions, right? And those talking points transcend the sports conversation, even though that was a limited population of people like you've named right that if it's happening to these folks it's just a matter of time angela davis it's just a matter of time till they come for everyone else this is just kind of the foot in the door to see if this gets more traction and it sure did um, and then the other cultural project of trying to battle a deep-seated gender essentialism amongst our society as as a whole that says there is a definitive biological difference between men and women that means men do this and women do this. And you and I as NB people are nowhere in that equation because we don't exist. <laughs> right. That's the other thing. It's like, we can't even like talk about like non-binary athletes <laughs> right now. And I'm just like, oh, they exist. They're winning championships. Like we're going to have to talk about that. But I also think, right, that in some ways it's incredibly complicated to have some of these discussions because some of the gender essentialism, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it is true, right? Like, and I want to be very clear about what I mean when I yes. say that, which is that when somebody who's assigned male at birth and who has typical chromosomes for those people who has a typical gender identity or ex an expected gender identity for um, those for those folks and then also has an expected gender expression right like all of those things are in alignment when that person who is a man right goes through puberty and experiences testosterone driven puberty like these things like really do matter they matter for athletic performance and for athletic output now to be clear much of our science focuses on the differences of that athletic performance and those athletic outputs from the lens of, of elite sport 
right? Mm -hmm. Like who is faster, who is stronger. And it's important to note that our sporting apparatus and our system was Mm -hmm. built to exploit those masculine traits where men have dominated, Mm -hmm. right? So like, that's very clear. Women in general are actually much better at endurance events. So like, but when we talk about strength and speed and power, like, I mean, it is an objective fact that at this time that I wrote this, this was true, Shikari Richardson has since run faster than, than not time about to say, but like Shikari Richardson ran uh, the 100 meters in 10.72 seconds, sixth fastest time ever for a woman. Mm. And the high school state open championship champion in Connecticut on the boys side, which is a very small state, won the 100 meter in 10.69 seconds, right? Like there are differences. Right. And, and like the way that those differences are communicated mm-hmm. as like in finality and in, and as arguments for policy that should happen in perpetuity is an incomplete conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, I think folks really focus in on that particular truth mm-hmm. to justify the feelings mm-hmm. they have about gender. Mm-hmm. Right. And my point is that, okay, we can talk about that. This is true. Right. Like this is a thing. And also let's talk about money. Let's talk yes. about resources. Let's talk about how girls and women's sports still aren't getting the same, like the level of funding and resource allocation that they are entitled to under the law. Let's talk about how there's been a lack of public and media investment in these sports over the course of their histories, which has suppressed, artificially suppressed the market for them, right? Like we could talk about all these things. And then when we see that level of equality, let's also then talk about what this looks like because- people will take this truth in track and field and say, oh, well, that means that, you know, Maya Moore could never be competitive. Like Maya Moore in her prime could not be competitive in a pickup game with similarly sized men. Mm. And I'm like, that's, that's not true. Like she may not dot, like, and I mean, NBA players, like would Maya Moore dominate against Stephen Curry? I, I don't know that she would, but the idea that like she couldn't get a stop is right. ludicrous. I bought you. Right. You know, it's like, or that she can't hit a corner three when she's open. I mean, come on. Like, so I think that we have just culturally as a society, we've really focused in on, you know, some of these objective truths and extrapolated in a way that I think really creates an incomplete conversation um, around what our sports say about us as a society and around what people are capable of no matter what sex they are assigned at birth or what gender identity they hold today. Yeah. At the end, yeah. Yes. Cause at the end of the day, I feel like what is playing out is a lack of precision, like you're saying, and then this inherent preying on that lack of precision that's already kind of embedded in how we talk about gender and how we talk about sex, which is its own problem that queer and trans folks are very well versed in. Um, and it makes me think I've had this headline pulled up for a minute because I was like, this has to come up because this feels like such an exemplar like of how that lack of precision turns into how the feelings around gender that we're discussing play into policy decisions um, or attempt policy decisions. And so it's the it's the headline about trans women have been banned from top level female chess over fears that they have an unfair advantage, right? And so the the subtext, right, is that trans women will be banned from top-level female chess tournaments 
while the International Chess Federation assesses whether or not they have an unfair advantage. And so the fact that this this federation, this organization, is going to assess, right, means that they will potentially be positioned to kind of look at a lot of the foundational research that it sounds like you've read or that you've read and researched to do your pieces plus your pieces. But that sounds like too much grace to give to a federation that's probably going to follow their own bias because of the conversation lacking precision and finding the answers that they already want to find. What fucking advantage could trans women have playing chess? This is where this has spiraled. This has where this has gone. This is silly. This is silly and dangerous, which is like at the same time. Yeah, the chess thing, it was pretty wild. It reminded me of when folks were really upset about, by some folks, I should say, were upset about Amy Schneider um, having, who was a trans woman who had a really long run on Jeopardy in sometime in the yes. last couple of years. Yes, yes, yes. And she broke the longstanding record for most consecutive uh-huh. wins by a woman. And people were like, she's not a real woman. That shouldn't be her record. And I was like, what are we doing? Right. Like, like, what are we doing? Um, you know, in terms of just like, it, I think to me, what is frustrating about how the how this conversation has evolved is that very quickly we moved societally from a place of folks saying, "Hey, everything I've been taught growing up is that boys have an unfair advantage over girls in sports." Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me that somebody who went through testosterone-driven puberty should be allowed to compete in girls and women's sports. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's fair, right? Like, that's a fine question to ask. Mm -hmm. And, And I think, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask and folks should be prepared to answer that question with Mm -hmm. the science and the data that we have, with the understanding that the science and data that we have is incredibly incomplete Mm -hmm. and it takes time to gather that science and data. Mm-hmm. And Joanna Harper, who is a researcher in this area in, at a university in the UK, she said something really interesting recently um, where she was she basically made the point that we need 20 to 30 years of science and data. And if everybody is banned, how do we get that data? Right? Like, how do we find what is good mm-hmm. evidence-based mm-hmm. policy if we don't have the ability to collect that? Right? Mm-hmm. I thought that was a good question. But I also think in this particular instance, we talk about chess, like on its face, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. Right. And then what ends up happening is because there's a knee jerk reaction to Mm -hmm. calling something out, which on its face feels ridiculous. Folks are like, well, wait, no, it's a point issue. It's like people who are competing in men's chess competitively Mm -hmm. have higher point thresholds for advancement, I believe, and making certain tournaments. And then if you transition and are a woman and you go into the women's category, do you get to carry that ranking with you? And what does that mean? And candidly, I don't know enough about chess to really answer that question. Mm-mm. Like in I've terms of Queen's Gambit, I've played chess. That's about all I got. That's about it. That's all I know. <laughs> I don't know anything about professional chess. Right. And so like there is that conversation about rankings but how it feels is that, wait, are we saying that people who are assigned male at birth are smarter and better at chess inherently right. than people who are not assigned male at birth? Like, that feels very silly. Right. Um, and so some of it, I think, is a lack of communication. Some of it is real animus. And some of it, um, 
I think is also a reflective of the general hurt that is felt cumulatively mm-hmm. by queer and trans folks around this discussion about policy and sports, mm-hmm. because why would chess ban trans women? But I also think that it's reflective of where we are in this right. conversation, which is the knee-jerk response is to say, oh, wait, we're just going to ban trans women from tra- from women's competition, and then we'll see if that's if we should do that later. We're going right. to gather evidence. Right. Um, and it's like, okay, but I don't know. Is there a proliferation of trans women in women's chess that we don't know about? Well, and what about trans men? Like the the flip side is that this federation, right. assuming that they also oversee men's tournaments, men's they chess tournaments, do. there's no, right. There's, and you've made this point infinite number of times in perpetuity that there is a heightened focus on eliminating trans women from sport not that it's not affecting all trans folks in various ways, but there's a significant focus on disallowing trans women to participate in women's sports because of, again, trans misogyny, lack of precision, gender essentialism, right? There's the the combination of misogyny and anti-transness is potent in the ways, right? And so this is another example of how the focus is going to be, well, we need to eliminate trans women, which I think rides on the curtails of all of these more like mainstream sport conversations. Um, And we're not seeing just because it's not, uh, the fandom is not as large for professional chess. It's probably very niche. Um, I also think of a local example that happened to, um, I'll say an acquaintance, but my partner plays in a pool tournament, like a billiards Mm. tournament locally. Um, And it's just amongst various bars in the area and folks travel to their respective pool matches. Um, And there's a human on, there's a trans woman on my partner's team who is very good. She's phenomenal. She has this beautiful handmade case for her cues. This is her life, right? This is the one thing that she emerges out of her little rural superior Wisconsin home for. um, And she comes to play this game and she's excellent, okay? And she scored very high over the course of this tournament. And when the postings on social media popped up for the, I think it was like top 10 in each gender category she was listed on the men's list which is already an accomplishment right because this this league is mostly men there's very few women in this league to begin with but she ended up on this top 10 men's list which based on what we're talking about right is an accomplishment because of the number of men participating in this tournament but she should have been on because she's a fucking woman the women's list and the captain of my partner's team even addressed it with the folks who facilitate the league and they acknowledged that they should have put her on the appropriate list but never actually did so and so i think that for me right witnessing this in such a localized way speaks to how much these national large-scale mainstream sports focused conversations trickle into there there's kind of a mutual feed right it focuses up and it comes down right there was no concept whatsoever that it was inappropriate to put her on that list even though either way regardless of what list she's on speaks to her talent but it then diminishes the celebration because she's not supposed to be on that list right well and i think it speaks to you know where we are at from a culture perspective on how we view trans people Mm -hmm. and how much I think the limited progress of affirmation has been unwound Mm -hmm. Um, where now folks 
culturally are much more comfortable with saying that trans women are, and Jen Richards actually has tweeted about this in the past, mm. where and she's a transgender actress and she has said, mm. that there are people who view me as a type of man, that trans woman as an identity is a subset of men mm. versus okay. a type of woman experience. Yeah. And I think honestly, like that's kind of where we are okay, for a lot yeah. of folks who think of trans women as like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I'll use your pronouns, maybe I'll use your name, but you're not a woman, you're a man, and you will always be a man, right? And thinking about how invalidating that I like that thought process is not just for transgender women who are seeking to participate in women's sports and compete in women's sports and want to be seen as who they are but also for, for all of us who have gender expansive identities mm-hmm. and who are trans in a broader, in a broad sense of the term, right? Because for myself as someone who's non-binary, like it's already a struggle to be validated in that identity. It takes a lot of work and education to mm-hmm. be seen as the person that I am and have always been. Mm-hmm. Like when I look back at my upbringing and who I was as a child, and like one of the most validating things that my mom has ever said to me, it's like a random phone conversation last year. You know, she was just like, you've always been non-binary. And I was like, in that moment, I know I was like, oh, you see me, mom, like, like am and who I was. And of course, you know, there was that period of time where I was trying to figure it out as we right. all do. Right. But whether you are holding, you know, a, a non-binary identity a, or you're a transgender woman or you're a transgender man, like the idea that it is okay to not see us for who we are mm-hmm. is like, I find that to be really disconcerting mm-hmm. because it's a matter of respect, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. and again, and mm-hmm. I think for me as somebody who is a sports journalist and who wrote a book that really sought to answer a lot of questions that I get from well-meaning people about sports like I will seek to answer that yes mm-hmm. and also just out of frame is all of this stuff around respect and this mm-hmm. idea that somehow it is okay to not respect who we are as right. people right on an individual level as we just move about the world right and that that to me I find to be really disconcerting yes. um because if somebody tells me, I don't know, like, because we make these, we respect people for who they are in so many different contexts, right? Like I grew up with a friend who, you know, his name, he's the third of the men in his family with that, like with his specific name, right? And so he went by Trace, T-R-A-C-E. And it was a play on Trace, right? Like I get it um yes okay (laughs) and like but that is what he that's what he went by that was his name right um growing up and and everybody did that like I go by a diminutive of Catherine Mm -hmm. and like every year in school somebody would say Catherine Barnes and I would say well my name is Katie please Mm -hmm. and they would call me by my preferred name Mm -hmm. like and so the the desire to not do what is asked of you in terms of being Mm -hmm. respectful to your fellow neighbor and society it has become allowable for that to happen only to transgender people right now yeah as if like 
my name and how I should be referred to is somehow up for debate. Uh huh. Right. And like that, that I find to be deeply challenging, mm-hmm. separate from whether or not, like, separate from what appropriate policy should be for elite Olympic swimming. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and the fact that these things are going hand in hand and are part and parcel. Um, I wish there was more serious discussion and grappling with that on a meaningful level and what that was doing to our greater community, separate from discussions about sport policy. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of a space I was in once where I was doing a what was supposed to be a 20-minute pronoun training. It turned into a 30-minute bizarre conversation with instructors. And I had never really been... I'd never experienced this particular type of reservation against uh, asking pronouns at the beginning of classes, which was what I was advocating for as some kind of method of opening up that space for folks to share pronouns in a classroom. And someone had named that they weren't sure they felt comfortable talking about gender at the beginning of class. And I was like, oh, wow, that is not how I've ever understood folks to experience or understand why we advocate for sharing pronouns in introductory spaces, right, as a baseline better practice. And so I had to kind of reroute that person's thinking to say, you're not, like, this is a piece of information that may be reflective or related to someone's gendered experience, but you're not asking about gender. You're not asking an intrusive question. This is about communication in the same way that you would ask people's names, like you're saying, um, in order to effectively communicate and affirmatively communicate about these people. And so I think not realizing that people have this reservation thinking that you're asking personal information was a new experience where I've now kind of shape-shifted how I educate on something as baseline as pronouns to say, this is about communication. This is not about understanding someone's deepest innermost thoughts about their gendered self. You just need to know how to refer to this person and not think too much about it. And that's, yeah, not not where we're at. No, and it's like really interesting because I remember in that story in 2018, um, you know, Nancy Beggs, who's Mac's grandmother, was talking about this very topic. And she was just like, you don't have to get it. You just have to go with it mm. right like i don't we don't need to fully understand each other there are a lot of things i don't understand about a lot of people <laughs> but like when i tell you my name and these are my pronouns just a good faith effort right, right. like the intentional misgendering the intentional undermining the intentional lack of respect as a means of communicating what you really think about our community broadly mm-hmm. like and that being consistently affirmed in the public arena that is the stuff that I don't, I don't know. I just, I really don't have time for. I find that to be very upsetting. Let's talk into the book a little bit more before we wrap up, right? Um, it's coming out the same day that this uh, podcast episode will push. Um, it is called Fair Play with a subtitle because the gays love a colon. Um, and you're an academic gay, so that also rings true. Um how about just a quick nutshell of the book, um, some highlights of writing the book, and what are maybe like one or two like significant signal boosts you want to give or what you're hoping the book kind of contributes to this ongoing conversation um, that you've really been privy to well before it has reached the public arena? The book is about everything we've been talking about this whole yes. time. Yes. 
Yep. Like that's what it is. It tells a story. There are a number of stories about various trans athletes in the book, some of whom you've heard from before, some of whom you have not, um, you know, some of whom we're, you know, hearing more from, and we haven't heard a lot from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, it really dissects kind of how we got here, where we are and where we're going. It's mm-hmm. that simple from a women's sports perspective and a transgender athletes perspective and sort of tying those things together. Um, then in terms of, I mean, writing the book was, you know, it was, I think of it as like the culmination of the entirety of my professional career so far. And what I mean by that is, of course, it talks about the topics that I am, that are near and dear to my heart, but like the entirety of the first chapter is talking about American Ninja Warrior, (laughs) which is like just something that I'm like, yes, I'm going to talk about sex separation in sports through American Ninja Warrior. Let's get it. The best. (laughs) Um, And I would also say that it is designed to be finished. Like it is at times heavy. Yes. But I think it's surprisingly light, um, even though the topic can be very hard to kind of wrap your head around. Yes, there is science, but there are plenty of spoonfuls of sugar um, to help you get through it. Um, You know, it's funny at times, I think. Um, And in that sense, you know, and I've heard that it's very readable. And that was what I wanted to have happen. I really want wanted people to feel confident they could finish it once they started it um this this topic doesn't have to be super daunting um and so ultimately when I think of what I want the book to do I want it to help reset some of this conversation to inject nuance into a discussion where there has not been very much Mm -hmm. um but then also I think to equip folks who are having conversations with loved ones and don't know where to start, don't feel like they have enough facts, don't feel like they have enough information to adequately have those conversations, this book is for you. Um, If you have questions about anything that we've been talking about in terms of the science, policy, this book is for you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you just want to hear, like, just read some good stories, like, this book is for you too. There's a little bit of everything in there for, a little bit of something in there for everyone, I think. Um, And it was very hard to do that. But I'm very pleased with where we ended up. And I think ultimately, um, it's the kind of book that will have a positive impact. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm really glad to hear it was a rewarding process. I know it's been a lot, a lot, a lot of work. Um, I'm excited to read it. I was I had posted recently and you responded with a with a fake apology. But I was like, people need to stop publishing books for a second so that I can catch up because there's been some really great stuff. I feel like I feel like everybody kind of like held on during COVID if they had something in the works. And then this is kind of the the prime year that folks are making making their debut with their books. But I'm super excited about it and just really um, proud, impressed and stoked for you and continue to be one of your uh, biggest fans. Um, and I'm really excited to read the book. So um, is there anything else you want to name before I pause this recording? No, just shout out the Midwest. I love the Midwest. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving 
or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>